0: You remain standing and pray with me, please? Lord, as we come to these passages of Scripture this morning, I'm reminded of Ezekiel 3. Lord, you tell your servant that whenever you hear a warning from my mouth, you shall give them warning for me. Lord, help us this morning to hear your word, Lord, to eat this scroll. Lord, may you say what you need to say to our hearts this morning. And, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'd encourage you this morning to, to get your Bibles or take the Pew Bible out this morning and open them up to Luke 14. Verses 25 to 33, that's page 874 in the, Bible, in the Pew Bible. But uh, Luke 14, 25 to 33, those are the words that Deacon Ann read. And just kind of stick your finger in there and hold that for a moment. And uh, we'll look at that text here in a few minutes. But I just wanted to begin this morning kind of by asking questions, actually, kind of in a lighthearted sense. Um, how many of you, if you've got to make a, dis- a quick decision or choice in life, how do you react I mean, I know in our household, for instance, just the choice sometimes of deciding where we are going to eat can be an emotional and anxiety-inducing experience for everyone involved. It kind of goes like this. We're driving down the road. We need to get something to eat, time. Usually, we're rushed in our schedules right now. And I'll look over at Dana, and I can say this. I'm not going to have to sleep with one eye open. I have her permission, by the way, to use this story. And I'll ask her a question, or she'll ask me, you know, where do you want to go to eat? You know, we don't have much time here. Usually one of us respond, you know, I don't care. Doesn't matter to me. You pick. Firehouse subs? Mm, nah, something else. What about five guys? Yeah, we're having burgers tonight. Gonna keep driving along. I didn't think it mattered. Well, it doesn't. <laughs> Everything I've mentioned, you're not feeling it. What about this place? And mind you, that's as we're driving by. Uh, maybe. What do you do, you know, what do you do with that? Stop in the middle of the road, turn around, and go back. And then finally, you know, most of the time, I kind of lose it. I mean, I get a bit impetuous. You know, it's like, well, somebody in this vehicle, just make a decision. I don't care where we're going to go. Fine, I'm going to make the decision. And then we'll find ourselves at the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, and the little lady or girl or the young guy, usually they have, they always have the nicest voices and the greatest tone. You know, it's a great day at Chick-fil-A. You know, can I take your order, please? Babe, what do you want? Hmm... Do I want a number? Oh, wait, what's that new thing there? It's just time, yeah. You know, just, I'm done, I'm done. Just, she'll have a number five, whatever, 12-pack, sweet, sour sauce, we're driving through. All right, how many of you, though, have been there and done something like that? I mean, just about all of you, right? I mean, with your significant other or a friend, I used to have a friend I worked with. He was the most indecisive human being I've ever been around. I told him, I love you to death, but you can't make up your mind about anything. But most of you know kind of what I'm talking about when we start talking about making decisions. And you know, in all of our lives, there are everyday decisions that really don't require a whole lot of thought, like, where you are going to go out to eat? You know, it really shouldn't be that big of a deal. You know what I mean? For instance, I wake up, do I wear a black shirt and black pants or black shirt and black pants? <laughs> Sometimes with blue jeans, right? Okay, so it's kind of a clergy joke. Or, you know, do I eat chicken or kale? Actually, I hate kale, so I'm going to always go with chicken. And there's, you know, we, but we don't have to think very hard about these kinds of life decisions, We don't have to think hard about those choices unless you're in the Huffman household and trying to go out and decide where you're going to go to eat, and that's a life or death matter. (laughs) But there are long-lasting decisions and choices we have to make in life too, you know? Like, where are we going to go to college? Am I going to date this person? Am I going to marry this person? Do I live in Winston-Salem or move from Winston-Salem? Do I quit my job and go to work somewhere else? Or do I buy a new home or not buy a new home? Or do I buy this home or that home? Do I retire now or do I wait? And, you know, when you start thinking about those major life decisions like that, they take a little bit more time, don't they? We have to think those decisions through. Hopefully, we'll pray about them. Why? Well, you know, if you get up in the morning and you wear a mismatched shirt and pants, the worst that could happen is people will laugh at you and point it out. It's not going to be detrimental to your life. But if you buy a house, for instance, that's fraught with problems without doing your homework, thinking it through, it could bankrupt you, actually. Well, this morning in our gospel text, in Luke fourteen twenty-five to 33, Jesus implicitly puts a major life decision before the crowd that's following him. And really the kind of the question is this, this decision, should they become his disciples or not become his disciples? And he does this in the following manner, really in kind of two ways. First, he defines for them what it means and entails to be his disciple. And then secondly, he warns them to count the cost before making that decision of becoming his disciple. And friends, I've got to be honest with you. As I was reading through this text, I have imagined that being forced to make such a major life decision that day in the lives of those people probably caused some anxiety for them. And friends, it might even do the same for some of us here today too. So first, Jesus defines what it means to be a disciple. And kind of by way of background, if you were here last week and heard Father Ben Pre, or heard Father Ben's sermon, you'll know that he was talking in that particular setting to just a few people at a banquet table about banquets. Just a few people, just a handful of people. But today, over in verse twenty-five, there's a transition. The Bible tells us that large crowds were now traveling with him. So by this time, Jesus goes from a small group to a big group. We can assume that he's achieved kind of a celebrity status, if you will, on his way to Jerusalem. And friends, it's important to note that just in that first verse, just because there's large crowds following Jesus or around Jesus, that doesn't really mean a whole lot. It didn't mean that much to Jesus. It doesn't mean that much today. You say, why is that? Well, his goal was not to draw a crowd. Jesus' goal was to make disciples. You say, well, how do you know that? Look at what Jesus says to them, this large crowd in verse 14, or excuse me, chapter 14, verse 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Talk about sobriety. Whoa, Jesus is kind of like this. He's like, oh, okay, I see. This crowd that's coming after me, you want to be my disciples? You want to follow me, okay? Well, then in that case, you have to learn to hate your family, hate your spouse, hate your own life, give up all your possessions, and then get ready for a really nasty death. Not exactly what I'd call, welcome to the kingdom of God, my disciples, type speech, is it? That won't sell books. That podcast will not get downloaded very many times off the internet. In fact, I wonder if it would even survive in a college classroom today. Maybe you've heard about this. College classrooms or rooms that are full of people who are saturated with all these emotional triggers. I have a feeling Jesus' words would probably send people running out of the room to go retreat into their feelings where they need to play with Play-Doh and then watch videos and puppies and kittens to recover. Some of you are laughing because you know it's true. You've read it, you've seen it. So these crowds are coming to Jesus and they're acting like they wanna be his disciples. So Jesus says, okay, I'm gonna give you four marks of what a disciple, what an authentic disciple looks like. And this morning, we're gonna unpack these a bit. There's four marks and you may wanna circle these, write these down, jot through these sometimes. There's a lot of questions sometimes about what authentic disciples look like. What Jesus tells us, first of all, that an authentic disciple is number one, it's a person who simply comes to him. Verse 26, a person who comes to to him, i.e. Jesus. All right, well, all right, big deal, they come to him, right? Well, there's a little bit more there you need to know. This phrase really means that they're not just kind of casually walking up to him, but a person would come to Jesus or a, a disciple would need to come to Jesus with great intentionality, with a desire to follow him. See, in Jesus' day, the phrases that you'll read in this scripture as well as other parallel passages of this account say words like the the one who comes to me or the one who comes after me or the one who follows me. And what that really means in that particular context, it refers to someone who willingly wanted to become a disciple or a follower of that person or of a teacher of a rabbi. And it goes a step further, even to the point that say not that they just want to be a follower, but they're willing to join that person's band of followers and kind of be in their classroom. Like for us today, it'd be like if we wanted to study under a particular professor or teacher or apprentice someone. So first of all, Jesus says, it's someone who comes to me. That's a genuine disciple who willingly, intentionally does so. Secondly, they must bear their own cross. Verse 27, they must bear their own cross. For us here today in 2016, that needs a bit of clarifying too. Because, see, bearing one's cross is not some mystical, selfless, deeper spiritual life reserved only for the religious elite. Bearing one's cross is not just the common everyday trials and hardships each of us endure. Bearing our cross is not the person that you just can't get along with in life. Bearing your cross is not your handicap, your suffering, or your disease. No, in this case, to bear one's cross is simply to be willing to pay any price for following Christ. Which may mean mean you would need to endure attack. You may endure shame, embarrassment, reproach, rejection, persecution, and yes, even in some cases, martyrdom for his sake one who bears their own cross. Thirdly, he says, you can't be my disciple unless you relinquish all that you have. And I'm getting a bit out of order here, but that's at the very end of verse 33. He tells them it's a person who gives up all that they have, who relinquishes everything they have. The reason I'm clarifying these is because it's easy to read this and misunderstand this. Some of us get into trouble when we read these kind of passages and do things that we should not do. Listen, that doesn't mean that you have to give up all of your stuff. But for the disciple of Jesus, it does mean that our stuff doesn't own or control us. It means that Jesus is really Lord and owner of all of our stuff. That's how we live our life. And that all that we have in life, our health, all that there is, we recognize that it's all own loan. It's not really ours. We are stewards of everything we have. So Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to relinquish. You've got to get rid of er it or you've got to get rid of everything you have, meaning nothing can control you. Fourthly, he says, and here's kind of the biggie. I'm going back up to verse 26. In order to be his disciple, one must hate their family and hate even their own life. Now, I've got to be honest with you. This is where most of us kind of get off the discipleship bus. We're kind of okay with the first three. I mean, it's even kind of cool and hip now today to try to live poor if you're not. We kind of get what it means to bear our own cross. And yeah, we're willing to come to Jesus. But right here's where things get a little bit tough. We're kind of okay with the first three. Why does this bother us? It's probably because of that emotional trigger word there. Jesus used the word hate. Hate. You might say, Well, Father Keith, I gotta be honest with you. I really don't like this Jesus at all, this version of him. I like the Jesus who is all about unconditional love, the Jesus who's all about being non judgmental, who's all about being inclusive and diverse and empathetic and sensitive, all those God words of our culture today. I like that Jesus who's mostly about free grace and just loving everybody. Jesus used the H word, and he's not talking about hell. He's talking about hate. Are you sure that's what Jesus said? We've even had some people, and some people try to explain these type things away, and it goes something along the lines of this. You may hear this if you go down to a religion department like at one of our major colleges I won't mention. Jesus using the word hate just means really that some mean people in history wanted power and so they just decided to kind of pencil this into the Bible saying, hey, if we just pencil this in, we make everybody feel guilty all the time. And then guess what? We'll have the power and they'll do whatever we want them to do. So Jesus didn't say hate, did he? Yeah, Jesus said hate. And for some of you this morning, it, this just very well could be. For some of you this morning, you may be like, you know what? I'm sorry. I can't do this. Your savior is a bigot. I'm done. And you might decide to get off the discipleship bus. Hold on. Friend, Jesus did say hate, but listen up. He used that word in a hyperbolic sense. For example, if I said, I died laughing, which this is no laughing matter, that doesn't mean that I literally died laughing, right? It just means that something was very funny. That's a a statement of hyperbole, of exaggeration. It's hyperbolic. Well, in the same way, Jesus is using the word hate as a hyperbolic, Semitic expression of comparison. Say, what in the world is that? In layman's terms, that means that, or in layman's terms, listen up, that means that one loves something so much more, so much greater, that when that love is compared to how one loves other things in life, it may look like hate in comparison. For example... I love Dr. Pepper. (laughs) I can drink Coke. But if you bring out a Dr. Pepper and a Coke side-by-side to me, I may hurt your feelings if you're a big Coke fan. Because I'm going to be like, Yay, Dr. Pepper, I love Dr. Pepper. I really just hate Coke, okay? I hate Coke, not because I just hate it. I can drink it. But I hate it in comparison to how much I love Dr. Pepper. You follow me? See, friend. (laughs) See, friends, what Jesus is getting at here, though, by this statement of hate, what Jesus is getting at here is that our love, that our commitment and our allegiance to follow Jesus is to be so full, so complete, so high, so ultimate, and done with such a singleness of heart and mind that it might look like we hate others maybe even our own lives in comparison to how we love Jesus. Friends, do you have it in your heart and minds that Jesus Christ this morning is the best, the greatest, the most good, the most loving, the most ultimate, beautiful thing there is in all the universe? Friends, is Jesus Christ the ultimate thing in your life this morning Or is he like the third wheel at a table for two? Always getting in the way of life. Or at most sometimes, Jesus, for many of us, sometimes even my own life, if I'm not careful and I'm not looking, can seem like a hobby or a mere convenience. So why does Jesus put his followers on the spot? Why does Jesus challenge us so hard? Is it just to, to make us feel guilty? Is it just to show them, those, his followers there, and even us today, to just show us how inadequate we are? Is he trying to hurt us? Or is he trying to beat us down or whip us somehow into shape? No. It's kind of like this. I had an algebra teacher in high school, sweetest lady you ever wanted to meet. Occasionally she would stop what she's saying and say, you know what? I love y'all enough to tell you the truth. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus loves the people who are following him. Jesus loves you too. And he loves all of us enough to tell the truth. And contrary to what some preachers and teachers, even in the church today, may say, Some make it sound like following Jesus is easy, that your life is going to get better, that things are going to happen, that it's going to be just a bed of roses from that point on. Listen, Jesus is issuing a warning that the road of discipleship with Jesus is not easy and that the decision to follow him should not be taken lightly. Late Johnny Cash put it this way. He had a radical conversion in his own life and he said, friends, being a Christian is not for sissies. It takes a real man to live for God, a whole lot more man than to live for the devil. So, friends, what defines a true, through and through disciple of Jesus? There's four things. A willingness to come and follow him, being willing to bear your own cross, relinquishing all that you have, and really loving Jesus above all else. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. The sad thing is, though, friends, though, if we cannot find in our hearts to be these things, to live these things out, to do these things. Jesus says we cannot be his disciple. Friends, I didn't write that. Those are the words of Jesus. So with such a high and heavy demand on those who would follow Jesus or those who do follow him. Jesus then secondly warns both followers and would-be followers to count the cost. To count the cost of being a disciple before making that hasty decision. Does that in verses 28 to 33, or excuse me, 28 to 32. And he does that really by giving them two parable like illustrations. The first one involves a man who started to build a tower and could not finish, and as a result, he endured public shame. The second illustration involves someone starting a war without measuring out the enemy or the strength of of an enemy. And as a result, they incur catastrophic destruction in their life. What's the point of those two stories? A lot of people in Jesus' midst who were following him, they had considered the kingdom of God's assets. They considered the assets that came along with being around Jesus But few, if any, had considered the liabilities of following Jesus. They liked his words. They liked how he reached out to the marginalized. They liked how Jesus embraced the outcast and the poor. Those following him liked his miracles of healing the blind, the lame, and raising the dead. They liked how Jesus hung out with sinners that made them feel good and accepted in a culture that pretty much rejected many of them. And they loved how he really sucked it to those oppressive Pharisees and annoying Sadducees all the time. And they really liked also how Jesus maneuvered around the socio religious political elites of their day. They liked it when Jesus fed them. Perhaps you remember the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 one day over in John chapter 6 with bread and fish. They liked the kingdom of God assets. But it's doubtful many people that day had considered the liabilities of being part of the kingdom of Christ by following Christ. See over in John chapter 6, maybe you're familiar with that story. Jesus feeds the 5,000. You read through the entire passage there of John chapter 6, you actually find the Lord not really being all that happy. With those folks, for they were following him not because he was savior and creator and savior of the world. They were following him because they got their fill of bread. They liked kingdom assets. Friends, Jesus was not inviting them to join a do-gooder, hipster, humanitarian project. Jesus was not, does not invite us to the 5K charity run to help with some great calls, though that may be a good thing for us to do. No, Jesus calls them as well as us to literally follow him, to be like him, to talk like him, to live like him, to love like him. And yes, even if called to do so, to die like him. Beloved, I know this is hard for some of us to hear today. But as one commentator said, but the church must hear the demands of Jesus over and over and over and over again in each generation. And each generation needs to count the cost. And friends, we particularly need to do that in today's culture because I'm pretty convinced that it has little understanding of commitment. I saw a sign the other day that sums it up pretty well too. It's not really a bumper sticker you would want to drive around with, but it says this. It says, We are stuck in a generation where loyalty is just a tattoo, love is just a quote, and lying has become the new truth. People will say that we're, including myself at times, that we're all about following Jesus. Yes, we want to follow Jesus. When we're really after kingdom assets, we will follow him right up until there's a commitment to be made. We will follow him right up until we see that it's going to cost us something personally. We will follow him right up until it's going to push us out of our comfort zone to do something for the kingdom that we normally had not even thought would be in our repertoire of strengths. You're right. It's not in your strength. That's why he's pushing you to do it. People will commit or follow Jesus right up until there's really the big sacrifice in life, be it it money, be it time, be it talent, whatever it is. Yes, many of us have considered the kingdom assets. We've considered and calculated those very well. We love the idea. We've calculated these things with just the absolute sharpness of any accountant. We love God's love and his grace for us. We understand the assets of Christ dying for us, of Christ saving us. We love the fact that our guilt is gone and that our shame is shattered, that we're forgiven and adopted as his children. We love the fact that Christ is transforming and growing us. We love the idea that that Christ was resurrected from the dead and that one day we we will participate in that. We love that loving hope and that glorious future and all of that. We love those things. It's the, I mean, that is the gospel, right? But have we counted the cost and liabilities of what it looks like to live a truly cruciform life like Jesus did? We love the victories, but not so much the liabilities. At each Eucharist the crucif- We say these words on the night that he's handed over to suffering and death. Listen, that's what a cruciform life is. That's what being his disciple really means. It really does mean, you know what? Death could happen to you. So what do we do? Much, the application is right there in those last few verses about the, the, the parable, the, the, the tower and the kingdom. Jesus says, sit down. Count the cost. Count the cost of following Jesus. Weigh out the assets and the liabilities. Way of conclusion, you know, it's really it's fair to say back this up. It's fair to really say that Jacques Hamel, you may or may not know his name, made this type major life choice to follow Jesus. It's fair to say that he'd counted the cost of what it means to be a full-fledged disciple. say, what do you mean? All this man's friends, Jacques Hamel, all his friends said that this 85-year-old man was a loyal disciple of Jesus. That was their testimony of him. They said that for 58 years in his life, he proclaimed the gospel of Christ daily in his words and deeds, and that wherever he went, he did good among people. On the morning of July 27th, 2016, Father Jacques Hamel went into the local parish at Saint-Antin-du-Roy, it's as close as I can get to French, I'm sorry. (laughs) Speak redneck French. But on July 27, 2016, he went in to celebrate the mass that morning as he had done for years. And there's no way he could have anticipated what would happen next. Two men approached him at the altar. Then as one eyewitness accounted, they attacked Father Hamel. He wanted and tried to defend himself, but they forced him to his knees. And that's when the tragedy happened. They took out a knife and stabbed him in the chest and then slit his throat in front of everyone. Eyewitness says the priest fell down looking upward toward the congregation while the ISIS attackers gave a brief sermon like talk in Arabic. And it was said that Father Jacques Hamel tried to push away his attackers with his feet while laying there dying, saying, go away, Satan, go away. Why his attackers said, Allahu Akbar, Allah is great. Lutheran pastor Hans Finney summed up the situation that happened that day this way. And just as a note, I mean, that's really kind of how I want to go out, not necessarily in that, but I want to go away battling Satan right up to the day I die. You know what I'm saying? This man's kicking his attackers, right up, fighting the devil right up to the end. But anyway, Lutheran pastor Hans Finney, he summed up the situation this way. He said, Jesus Christ sent Father Hamel to preach the gospel. And the world responded by doing exactly what Jesus said it would do to preachers of the gospel. He said, Jesus Christ sent Father Hamel to tell sinners that the Son of God had set them free from the power of Satan. And Satan responded by doing what Jesus promised Satan would do. He said, Christ sent Father Hamel to give God's love, his mercy, his kingdom, and his power and glory to all who would believe. And Satan responded by spilling Father Hamel's blood to frighten the people away from the faith. He goes on to write, he said, I don't know if Father Hamel had the chance to speak any last words to his flock as the terrorists stormed into his sanctuary He said, but I do know that any faithful pastor wouldn't need to say much in his final benediction. Said to fulfill the final task of his job, all he'd need to do is look at the sheep he'd ministered to and faithfully discipled all those years and say, don't be afraid. (laughs) Don't be afraid. These men have come here to take our lives, but they're too late our lives already belong to Christ. Friend, does your life belong to Christ that way this morning? If you are a disciple, then our lives belong to Christ. Follow Jesus, yes, but count the cost. It's never easy, as even as we see in the life of Father Hamel. (laughs) Friends, I love y'all enough to tell you the truth. In the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.